Morning, Keystone. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of Zechariah again, uh, second to last book in your Old Testament. This morning is going to be our last sermon in part one of the series, looking at Zechariah's uh, visions in chapters kind of one through six, although we're just going to be in chapter five this morning because we already looked at the vision in chapter six. Uh, Over the next two weeks, we're going to be out of the book of Zechariah, Pastor Joel and uh, Pastor Ben are going to be preaching the next two weeks, and then we'll jump back into Zechariah 9 through 14 after that uh, to look at Zechariah's visions of a coming king leading up to Christmas. Uh, My my hope for uh, us as we've looked at the book of Zechariah in part is just to be able to see and experience that God speaks through every single part of his word. Uh, that he speaks to us, has something to say to us and to our lives today through every single part of his word, including the parts that we may find a little bit odd or maybe confusing at times. And so my my hope and prayer has been that that's how God's using this series in some ways. Uh, And that's what I want to pray again this morning before we even jump in here. Uh, Father, we believe that your word is powerful, living, active. We believe that it has something to say, not just to the the people it was written to originally thousands of years ago, but to us today as your people, uh, that you are the God who continues to speak, the same God, the same God who's speaking to us through your word now. But we we know the, the only way that happens is not by might nor by power, but by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray for your spirit to be active during this time, speaking to us, to convict us, to encourage us, to build us up more into the image of Christ. Do that by your power for your glory, we pray. pray In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I I wonder if you've ever had a vacation that didn't go the way that it was supposed to go. It didn't go the way it was supposed to go. Uh, And and maybe you think, uh, yeah, that's like every vacation that I've been on before. There's something that's gone wrong. Like no vacation goes the way that I want it to go. In 2019, uh, my family went to Florida, uh, and and we went there in part to celebrate my mom's 60th birthday, Uh, and it was a vacation we're all very looking forward to quite a bit. Uh, My brother and his wife live out in California, and so their family was flying in. We were all going to be in Florida for the week, and so we're all excited for it. Uh, We get our bags packed. We catch our flights. We make it on time. Everyone arrives safely, and, and we've all got that kind of like first day of vacation excitement uh, that only comes on the first day of vacation, I think, as you're looking forward to like a week off. So everyone's happy, having a good time. Uh, And then around five o'clock that first day, something ominous happened. My nephew said his stomach hurts. And and all of a sudden, okay, well, what's going to happen here? Uh, And we very quickly realized this is not just like from him eating too much food, but this is he picked up the stomach bug somewhere along the way, and he's sick with a stomach bug. And so for the next uh, six, seven days of vacation, how many days we were there, every single day from between 4 o'clock and 6 o'clock p.m., someone came down with the stomach bug. It was like clockwork over and over and over again. And I think that was the first time that we kind of experienced that type of sickness on vacation. And it left us saying, like, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This isn't supposed to be on, happen on vacation. Didn't someone get the memo? And there was something interesting about every single day we kind of woke up, or at least I woke up this way, with the hope that, like, maybe today will be different. Maybe no one will get sick today. 
only for 4 o'clock to 6 o'clock p.m. to roll around and have someone get sick again and have our hopes get crushed. See, it it was interesting that, that when I had this hope, maybe today will be different. It was that much more discouraging when it turned out today wasn't any different. This, this book of Zechariah we've seen is written to the Israelites who are returning home from exile and captivity. And they would have seen and heard about their parents' and grandparents' sinfulness and, and how they had sinned against God and what they had done in rejecting God's authority and what they've done in worshiping idols. They, they'd seen, they'd heard it. And they had seen and experienced the results of it as they spent time in captivity realizing that this was God's punishment against their sin. And so we have to imagine they're likely returning back home thinking, this time it's going to be different. This time it's going to be different. We'll be better than our parents. We'll try harder. We won't sin as much. Like this time it's going to be different. And so it must have been extra discouraging when they had to confront the reality. It's no different we're still just as sinful as our parents and grandparents before us. We read in Ezra and Nehemiah stories that show us these people returning home were no different. They were just as sinful in many ways as their parents who went into exile. I think just imagine the discouragement of that, coming back home, thinking it's going to be a new day. We've got a fresh start. It's going to be different only for it not to be different and to be plagued by the problem of sin still. It would have left them asking What's God going to do about sin? What's he going to do about sin, including our sin? Is he going to send us back into exile? Are we just doomed to the cycle of exile, back home sin, exile, back home sin? What's he going to do about sin? And I think it's a question we still are prone to ask today, whether we're Christians or not Christians. We might ask it differently, but still this, what is God going to do about sin? Whether we look inwardly and and see sin within ourselves or look outwardly and see sin in the world, we're left asking, what is God going to do about this? I mean, I just think when when we see the sin that still resides in us, it can be extremely discouraging, especially if you've been a Christian for any amount of years. You're left thinking, I thought I should be better by now. (laughs) Like I thought, I, I didn't think I was still capable of doing things that were so awful. What's God going to do about sin? Or we look at the world around us and we see sin and all its devastating effects and we think, well, what is God going to do about this mess? What, he's, what is he going to do about sin? This is not the way that it's supposed to be. And the two visions we find in Zechariah 5 give us an answer to that question. They show us God's plan for sin in this world and in our lives. That we find God has a plan for dealing with the problem of sin. It's the the big idea we look at this morning. And we're going to see from these visions that God's plan is to expose sin, to to judge sin, and then ultimately to remove sin. But while the vision may be a little bit confusing, the the actual aspects of what it's communicating, I think, are pretty straightforward. And so let's read in Zechariah 5 and then look at those three things this morning. Zechariah says, starting in chapter 5, verse 1, Again, I lifted up my eyes and saw... And behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, the angel who was beside him, what, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. 
For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the, out, the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said, lift your eyes and, and see what is this that is going out? And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, what, where are they taking the basket? And he said, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. The, the first thing we can look or see just from looking at this first vision in verses 1 through 4 is that God will expose sin. Part of his plan for sin is to expose it in the world and in our lives. In this first in vision, we're introduced to this scroll. And it's a very large scroll. Picture a billboard, 30 feet Long and 15 feet high is essentially what it is. And on this scroll is written God's word. Because for the Israelites, a scroll in this day is uh, the way that they would read God's word or hear God's word read to them. And we find that this scroll is especially associated with God's law. Because on the one side, there's this reference to the eighth commandment against not stealing. And on the other side, there's this reference to the third commandment of taking God's name in vain because they're swearing falsely by God's name. And so these commands seem to serve in kind of a representative role, highlighting that the scroll contains the Ten Commandments or maybe even more of God's law. And the idea of the scroll being so big and flying out is that no one can remain hidden from his, its sight. Like a drone that might go into enemy territory to expose hidden positions, this scroll goes out to expose sin in people's lives because God's law is given to expose what sin is. God's law exposes what sin is, that it's a primary function of God's law. And we might even say of, of his word in general is to reveal and expose what sin is and reveal and expose sin in us. As I've been driving along Strasburg Pike recently, my wife and I live along Strasburg Pike, and so I, I drive uh, pretty often along Strasburg Pike. I, I've gone past this house that has these two signs, two little signs, out right by the road out front of their house. You might think, well, yeah, of course, everyone has signs right now. They're political signs, right? No, they're not. They, they are white cardboard signs with handwritten letters on them. A and here's what the signs say if you drive past them. They say, you stole something from here on September 29th, police were called, truck described, please return. I wanted to stop and take a picture of them so you could see them, but I was worried like they're going to look out and see me taking a picture. Like, we got the guy, get him. But, but what are those signs meant to do? To expose sin. Not just for everyone that, hey, someone stole something here, but specifically in the person who stole, they, they might go by that, see that their sin is exposed, and as a result, respond to it. That, that's a function of God's law 
in all of our lives for all sinners, that it's meant to expose in us sin and meant to help us see what sin is. That's why Paul can say in Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Or or Paul says in Romans 7.7, I wouldn't have known what it was to covet if it weren't for the law. But then the law said, don't covet, and all of a sudden I saw all sorts of covetousness in me. So Paul's got this idea of the law is given and it exposes sin in us. So that's one of its primary functions. That apart from the law, we, we wouldn't know what sin is. We might have this feeling that something's wrong in the world and in us, but we wouldn't be able to clearly define what, what sin is and what it is that's wrong. Mark Jones has written a book, uh, book called Knowing Sin. And he says in that God's law is the standard for right and wrong. All sin must be a transgression of God's law. We have our knowledge of sin because of God's law. Now, let me pause here and and just point out for us. I think we know this, but just point it out. One of the dangers for us and for our world is that rather rather than accepting God's definition and standards for right and wrong and what sin is, that we end up redefining what sin is. That, That I say, I don't think that's sin. And a whole lot of other people don't think that's sin. And so that must not be sin. That, that one of the ways we try to deal with the problem of sin on our own is we simply try to redefine what it is in our, according to our own opinions or preferences. I, we see this in all sorts of ways r- related to sexuality and gender in our culture and in our world. Right? I, I don't have to tell you, you know this, you, you see this. But we should recognize it's a whole lot easier for us to see how the world does that than it is for us to see how we do that. Because we're just as prone to redefine sin in terms where we don't have to say that it's actually sin. Where where we redefine pride as self-esteem or greed as good stewardship or whatever it might be that we we should wonder, where do I redefine sin in my own ways too rather than accepting what God has said is sin. And, And well, what's interesting about that is even when we try to redefine sin, we're still exposed as sinful. Because in that moment, what am I saying if I'm trying to do that? God, you're not good, your standards aren't good, and you don't have the authority to tell me what is right and wrong. And that's the very essence of what sin is, that I rebel against God, I reject him, I say you're not good, I don't trust you, you don't have any right to tell me what's right and wrong, I decide that for myself, I want to be God. And, and that's the essence really of what sin is. The law exposes everyone is a sinner, and it exposes specific sin in us. Now here's why I just want to, for a second, give maybe a takeaway for us too. We should invite God to expose sin in our lives. We should want God to expose sin in our lives. If we really believe deep down sin is the biggest problem in the world and in our lives, then we should invite God. God, expose sin in me through your word. That that one of our prayers should be along the lines of what David prayed in Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That when we come to God's word, 
whether individually or together, one of our prayers should be, God, show me myself. Show me my sinfulness. Show me what I don't see. And not only that we invite God to do that, but, but we also invite other people to do that as well. Invite them to point out where there may be sinner lives that we don't see. One of our unsaid beliefs in the 21st century, not only outside the church, but I think sometimes inside the church too, is no one can judge me. No one can judge me. And, and A, that's false, because God can judge us. He's created us. He's made us. We are accountable to him. He's every right to. But, but B, I, I think sometimes, sadly, then it gets in the way of us being willing to hear other people's concerns about our lives. Because we immediately throw up our guard and say, whoa, 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 you're judging me. Rather than saying, well, maybe, maybe you're sharing this out of love and concern and you see something in me that, that I don't see. That, that we should invite God and other people to expose sin in us so that we might see it for what it is. But then we also have to recognize that the law can expose sin, but it cannot cure sin. The law can expose sin. That's what this scroll is doing, but it cannot cure or take care of the problem of sin. The, the history of Israel is a history of a people who over and over again promise to obey God's commands, try really hard to obey God's commands, and fail really miserably at obeying God's commands. We see in their history and in the Bible as a whole that God's law is given to expose and diagnose sin in our lives, but it can't cure sin in our lives. And I think sometimes we forget that, even when we believe that we're saved by grace through Christ. There there are many people today who, who have this hobby of taking care of plants. This is not my domain, but I would guess it's some of your domains. That maybe some of your houses almost look like jungles because you've got so many plants everywhere. And I found out over the past year, there are apps you can use to take a picture of your plants in order to identify the plant, but more than that, in order to expose whether it's healthy or sick. So I experimented this past week. Uh, I downloaded one of these apps. We've got a couple plants over in our office. Uh, Maybe I'm the one who's supposed to be taking care of them. I don't know. But I took a picture of one of them, uh, found out it's a fiddle leaf fig, and found out it is really sick. Uh, It got a score of one out of I don't know how many. I'm guessing 10. But they're like, this plant is sick. Uh, It said it doesn't get enough water. It doesn't get enough sunlight. uh, And the soil that it's in isn't healthy. Now, it would be really foolish for me to think, okay, well, if I just keep taking pictures of this plant, that will cure the plant. Like every day, just another picture or more pictures. No, the plant would actually end up getting worse because pictures can diagnose what's wrong with the plant, but they can't cure it. God's law can diagnose and expose our sinfulness, but it can't ultimately cure it or take care of it. Of it. And there's a danger for everyone, including those who trust in Christ, to rely on the law to take care of the problem of sin. Again, we might say, well, I, I know that I'm not saved by works of the law, but by faith in Christ, by grace, because of what he's done for me. How might I rely on the law to take care of the problem of sin? Anytime sin is exposed in us and we think, I just need to try harder and be better, 
we're relying on the law to overcome the problem of sin, right? I just need to do, I need to do more. I need to try harder. I need to obey the law better and that will take care of it. A- anytime we hear about sin in someone else's life and we think, man, what's wrong with them? Why can't they just stop doing that? What are, what are we saying? Why can't they just obey the law? Why can't they just obey the law? Anytime we see sin exposed in our kids' lives and we think, if I just give them more rules or do a better job of enforcing the rules, that will take care of it. What are we doing? We're saying, if I have more law, better at enforcing the law, that will solve the problem of sin in their lives. Anytime we look at our culture or the world around us and we think, if we just had better laws, we could fix all of our problems. What are we saying in some ways? The law can take care of the problem of sin. Now, don't hear me wrong. The law is good. It's good for exposing sin. It's good for restraining evil. And we should want good laws for ourselves, for our children, for our world. But we have to come back to over and over and over again. The law cannot ultimately cure sin. Because the law, in many ways, only exposes more of how we fail and more of the judgment we deserve as a result of failing. It's the second thing we see in this first vision, that God will punish sin. I will punish sin. Because the scroll goes out over the land, and we find out it's going out, and and what's it doing? It's cleaning people out. the, The one who steals shall be cleaned out. The one who swears falsely shall be cleaned out. Well, that that word for shall be cleaned out, it, another way that it's translated throughout the Bible is saying sin will not go unpunished. That sin will not go unpunished. It, it often shows up that way in Proverbs. And so Proverbs 19.5 is an example of this, where it says a false witness will not go unpunished. Same word there. And he who breathes out lies will not escape. We, we find this scroll is a curse that's going out. <laughs> Entering people's houses, sinners' houses, and and as a result, carrying out punishment, destroying their livelihood in the form of their houses being broken down completely. Why, Why is that? Because sin puts us under a curse and ultimately makes us deserving of God's judgment and punishment. The the New City Catechism, which is the catechism we teach our kids here at church, and it's an incredible thing to teach our kids, but it's an incredible thing for us also to learn or read at times. Ask the the question, will God allow our disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished? And the answer is no. God is righteously angry with our sins and will punish them in this life and in the life to come. That's the picture we see displayed in this vision. God's curse and punishment carried out against sinners in the destruction of their lives and livelihood. It's the same thing that Paul is going to pick up on in Galatians 3.10 where he says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, curse be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. See, God cannot let sin go unpunished. God cannot let sin go unpunished, this vision would tell us. One of the questions that I think many ask in our times, and, and maybe we even ask it at times, is if God is so gracious and so merciful, and so loving, why can't he just overlook sin? Why can't he just overlook it? If he's so gracious and merciful and loving, why why does he have to punish it and curse it? And there's lots of answers for that question, or, or there's multiple answers we can give that question, but one of the ones we should have as foundational is God is holy, 
and sin is an affront to his glory and the goodness of his world, and he cannot let sin go unpunished as a result. In fact, this scroll, its dimensions, we find are actually the same dimensions as the holy place in Moses' tabernacle, and the same dimensions as the entrance room into Solomon's temple. The scroll is connected to God's temple, to his holiness and his dwelling among his people. And so there's this idea, even in this, that a holy God cannot dwell in the presence of sin. He has to, must punish sin. I think we we know that, and yet still I wonder, there are times where we really think, man, is sin really that bad? Does God really have to punish it? Maybe the really bad sins, but, but the smaller ones, does God really have to punish those? They really deserve a curse? Why can't he just overlook them and turn his head the other way? Here's, here's an image, maybe, that helps us understand why God can't just overlook sin. Imagine with me for a moment that you are in your home, and you're asleep in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden you wake up to loud banging noises in your living room, and you instinctively know there's an intruder in my house right now, in the middle of my night. Now pause right there. And just imagine if someone told you, let's say your spouse rolled over or someone else told you, can't you just let them go? Can't we just fall back asleep? Like, it's no big deal. Can't you just overlook it and let them go? Like, we, we instinctively know the folly of that. We, we instinctively say, no, there is an intruder in my house who's threatening my safety, my family's safety. He has to be or she has to be confronted and dealt with. We can't just fall back asleep and overlook this problem. That's the same reality of God cannot simply just overlook sin. It's an affront to his holiness. It's an intrusion into his good creation. And God would not be holy, loving, or good if he simply said, I'll overlook it and not do anything about it. Every single sin deserves to be punished, which means every single sinner deserves to be punished. And this is where we need to be reminded over and over and over again, our sin deserves to be punished just as much as anyone else's. It would have been really easy, I think, for the Israelites to look around and say, the nations around us, they deserve to be punished. God, look at what they've done to us. Look at how horrible they are. And this vision is God's way of saying, yes, and you deserve to be punished for your sin as well. It's, it's all too easy for us to rail against the sins of other people or our culture or whatever it might be and say, that deserves punishment. And to fail to recognize over and over and over again, the same sinfulness in me deserves to be punished. And when we rail against others without recognizing ourselves, we start to think my sin really isn't that bad. It can just be overlooked. I would imagine all of you have had an experience where you've been driving on the road and you see someone else do something really dumb, for lack of a better word. Maybe it's where you're, you're in a lane waiting your turn. There's two lanes coming into one and you're waiting in the learn, lane that everything's merging into, waiting your turn, and someone goes flying past in that lane and merges in in front of you down there. It doesn't wait their turn. Or maybe it's at a four-way stop sign and you're sitting there, and you're waiting their turn, and someone jumps in line and goes ahead of you when you aren't supposed to. What, what's our instinctive reaction in those moments? 
Where's the police at? Someone should do something about this. Like, pull them over. Take their license. They should never drive again. Don't they know that's against the rules? But I would guess every single one of us has done something very similar. That there have been times where you're the person who doesn't merge on time and cuts in line. And and what happens in that instance? I I, I didn't realize I was supposed to cut over earlier, right? Or or you or I are the person who cuts in line in a four-way stop sign. And what do we say in that moment? Well, I'm really busy and I really have to get somewhere on time, right? See, we see it in other people and we think, that deserves to be punished. But when it happens in us, we think, oh, no, it's, it's not that big of a deal. I have an excuse for it. The same thing happens in our hearts over and over and over again when we look at other people and think their sin deserves to be punished without recognizing my sin deserves to be punished just as much. There's a special danger for followers of Christ, especially those who've grown up in the church, which is me. And if that's you, hear me out on this. There's a special danger, temptation, where over time we start to think my sin isn't really that bad. I'm not as messed up as those people, whoever those people are. My sin isn't as deserving of judgment as theirs is. And in the process, we forget the, the only reason that Jesus had to came in, come into this world and die for sins is because my sin is just as deserving as judgment as anyone else's. What makes you and I a Christian is not that we are better than anyone else. What makes us a Christian is that we realize just how awful our sin is, just how much we deserve God to judge our sin, and we recognize the only way out is through Christ. The only way out is through Christ. When we realize deep down, like my sin deserves to be judged just as much as anyone else's, it undermines self-righteousness in us. It undermines self-righteousness, and it makes us realize again just how much we need the grace of Christ. And then we see in the second vision in verses 5 through 11, the the hope, the good news that God will remove sin. In the second vision, we're we're introduced to sin personified as a woman in a basket. And we see God removing sin from the land of Israel, carrying it to the land of Shinar, that's another name for Babylon, and putting it at a house or a temple there. It's this image of God ultimately removing sin from his people. It's an incredible, hopeful, really good image because it tells us only God can remove sin. Notice that the Israelites are not the ones who are removing sin from the land. God's the one who's taking that action to remove sin. They can't do it. He can. We are called to wage war against our sin, to confess it, to repent of it, to fight against it, but only God can ultimately remove it. Only he can remove its penalty in Christ. Only he can remove its power and grip on our lives as he makes us more like Christ. And only he can remove its presence one day when he fully removes it from this world and from our lives. And as we confront the problem of sin over and over again, we need to over and over again be reminded only God can remove this. Only he can deal with it because it affects how we respond when we see sin in our own lives. This past week on Friday morning, I was getting ready to go uh, out of our house to work. And as I am, my my son's running around the house playing, laughing. And I have uh, my my cup of coffee on our coffee table that sits right in the middle of a white rug. 
and you already know what happened. I don't need to tell you. But he's running around, and, and he, as he does, his arm smacks the coffee, and it goes flying across our white rug. And he immediately like, looks up at me, I think both because he wanted to see what, what's daddy's reaction in this scenario, but also because there was this instant recognition of, I made a mess, and I can't do anything about it. Right? Like, I can't clean this up. My, my son had no ability to clean that up. In fact, if he tried to, he just would have made it worse by rubbing it into the carpet. And so he immediately looked at me knowing only dad can clean this up. Is there this reality in us when we confront sin in our own lives, when we see its ugliness, when we see how awful we can still be, that we immediately look to God and say, God, only you can ultimately help me in this area. Only you can remove sin from my life. Or do we try to clean it up on our own apart from him? Again, I'm not saying that we do nothing. We wage war. We fight against sin by the power of the Spirit. That's why Romans 8.13 tells us, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live but I wonder sometimes if we catch the wage war apart, or wage war part, fight against it, battle it, without really remembering the by the power of the spirit part. That when confronted with the problem of sin, it should be another reason to do exactly what we were talking about last week, to call out not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, God. God, help me, help me, change me, transform me. I mean, when we're confronted with our impatience in our lives, do we respond and just think, I need to try harder to be patient next time? That's my instinctive response. Or do we say, God, help me to be patient. Like, make me more like Christ. Help me to see how patient you are with me. When we see our, our bitterness and our, how quickly we hold grudges and how unwilling we are to forgive or extend grace, do we think, I just need to try harder? Or do we say, God, help me to see how gracious you are and by the power of the Spirit, make me more like Christ. As we, as we wage war against sexual sin in our lives, do, do we come up against and say, oh, I just need to work harder, try harder to overcome this, or we say, God, only you can release the grip this has on my life and the power it has over it. As we're confronted with hearts that we know don't really love God like we should and don't really love other people like we should, does that cause us to say, God, only you can change my heart. Please help me to love you more and love others more. Only God can remove sin. Only he can change hearts. Only he can loosen its power. Do we recognize that? And does that cause us to call out to him in desperation? And then we see God is going to remove all sin. This vision shows us the ultimate end for sin. It's removed from God's people and from the land. It's taken away. This is the end of the story for sin. It hasn't happened yet, but we're waiting for it, knowing that God will one day ultimately remove sin fully, remove its presence. For all who trust in Christ, it's going to be dealt away with for good. And this is a wonderful truth because it enables us to look at sin and its effects in this world and not only say, that's not the way it's supposed to be, but to simultaneously say, that's not the way it will always be. To stare sin in its face and its ugliness, say that's not the way it's supposed to be, but to know that's not the way it will always be because God is going to remove this and deal with this one day. And that should encourage us in our battles with sin. 
to not grow weary against fighting sin in our own lives as we see it exposed in us because we know God will one day fully remove it. I'm guessing you've seen one of these before. Like, I haven't seen one. I've seen a thousand. They're all over the place. You, you know what that is. That's a spotted lanternfly, right? And it's a, this invasive species that destroys different trees. Now, what, what's your response when you see a spotted lanternfly? To pick it up? To cuddle it? <laughs> say, man, this is such a beautiful bug. This is incredible. No, like, you go into killer mode right? Smash that thing. Get it. Chase it down. Let's go. We got to remove it. But there's also this realization that no matter how many lanternflies we kill, we can't ultimately eradicate them. That doesn't mean we stop trying to kill them, but we can't ultimately eradicate them. There should be this sense in our lives when we see sin and we're confronted with it day by day by day, that we make war against it. We confess it. We repent of it. We pray to God to help us grow in this area. We seek accountability as we need it. Like we fight it all while recognizing only God can eradicate this and make this go away fully. I I was reading an article this past week about spotted lanternflies and in it a scientist admitted this. We don't feel as though eradication is an option for this. It's a pest we'll have to learn to live with. Man, that's kind of discouraging. doesn't matter how many lanternflies I kill. Like, that's just a pest we have to live with. I think sometimes that can be what discourages us in our battles with sin. That as we fight against it, we're tempted to give up because we start to think, this is just a pest I'm always going to have to live with. This is just a struggle I'll never be able to overcome. And to know that God will ultimately remove sin fully and finally from those who trust in Christ can encourage us. Keep battling, keep making war, and know that one day God is going to fully remove sin from this world and from our lives. Now, this vision, I think, must have been incredible for Israel to see because they see their sin exposed. They see that God's going to judge sin. And I have to think the next thing they think that's coming in this vision is God's going to tell them how he's going to send them into exile again. Right? That's what happened last time. They're just, when's God going to, who's the next people that are going to come in and crush us and take us away? And you know what they see instead? Not God sending them into exile, but God sending their sin away into exile and leaving them in the land. It just must have left them shocked. Like, wait, that's not what we thought was coming. And then it must have left them saying too, how in the world is God going to do that? How's he going to remove our sin and leave us in the land? How's he going to do what he says he's going to do in this vision? And the answer came for them 520 years later and for us 2,000 years ago, that it's only in Christ God does this, which is why it's really good news. God has already dealt with the problem of sin. God has already dealt with the problem of sin, that if your faith is in Christ, the problem of sin is already dealt with. It's not simply a future reality, although it still is, but it's also a present reality that we can know and live into right now. Because God has already exposed all your sin on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Jesus bore in his body every single one of your sins and my sins on the cross. You, you know you know what that means for us? 
There is no sin that can get exposed or brought to light in your life that hasn't already been exposed by Christ on the cross. Part of why we fear, I mean, it's true, part of why I fear other people knowing my sin is because I think it's going to change how they look at me and think about me. There is nothing in your life, if your faith is in Christ, that can ever get exposed that's going to change how God looks at you or thinks about you because he's already seen it and known it and dealt with it when Christ went to the cross. Jesus has already taken on the punishment of our sin on the cross, all of it. So that's why Paul in Galatians 3.13 has this incredible verse where he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. The gospel is not good news because it's God overlooks our sin. The gospel is good news because it's God carries out all the punishment, judgment, curse we deserve in Christ. And so it's already fully taken care of in him. It's not as if God's overlooked it. It's that he's already dealt with it. And then we see as well, God's already (coughs) removed our sin on the cross. Psalm 103, 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. If your faith is in Christ, we still struggle with sin. We know it dwells in us. But in a very real sense, God already sees us as sinless because he's put all our sins on Christ on the cross. If you're a Christian and you know Jesus and you've repented and you've trusted him, it's incredibly good news to realize God has already dealt with the problem of sin, that we rejoice in that. And if you're not a Christian, you, you, we have to come to the realization God is going to deal with sin. He's going to deal with sin, and either it's going to be in us placing our faith in Christ and believing he takes it all away and he deals with all the judgment, or, or it's in ignoring Christ and facing that one day ourselves. And God calls us, trust in Christ, repent, and know that sin is dealt with because of what he's done. And the incredible thing then is that when we're in Christ and our faith is in him, though we may get discouraged by our sinfulness, our sinfulness just gives us another reason to see how great God's grace is. That the more we see how awful and great our sin is, the more we wonder and see how awesome God's grace is that the more we feel the weight of how broken and sinful we are, the more we feel the weight of how gracious God is. It's when we stare sin in the face and then look to the cross and see Jesus has dealt with all of that, that we're more amazed by what he's done. I I think of several years ago, I I was driving home from church and I was sitting at the red light on 30 and Ronks Road, sitting probably like 200 feet back or more and I had music on in my car, I was kind of not paying attention, and all of a sudden I look up in my rearview mirror and I see an 18-wheeler tractor trailer bearing down on me at high speed. And there was this moment of like, here it, here it goes. And at the last moment, he swerved over into the turning lane and then got stopped just at the red light like 200 feet ahead of me. I never drove home happier in my life after that. Because there's a sense of that's what was coming for me and yet it swerved. I was never happier to be alive. When we over and over again see our sin for what it is, and we see the, the truckload of sin we have, the truckload of God's judgment we deserve, and yet then we see Christ stepping in, and instead that being poured out on him, it should then cause us not ultimately to be discouraged, but to say again that how amazing this is grace how worthy is he of our worship because of what he's done for us. Let's pray.
God, thank you that you not only promise to deal with the problem of sin, but you've already dealt with it in Christ. Pray that we would see that. God, help us not to hide from sin, to see its ugliness as it is, but to not grow discouraged or weary by it because we can look to Christ and know he's already dealt with it and that that might only cause us to worship him, to be in awe and amazed by his grace that much more.